The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So maybe we should start by asking forgiveness from the children who aren't getting candy at our houses or homes. For those of you who don't have a partner at home giving out candy, please forgive us. So it's maybe a good night to talk about the escape. You know, we've been trying to bring a fresh look at um, being a human being, living in this world, this central world where we see and we touch, we smell and taste, we hear, we think about all of those sense experiences all the time, the past experiences, the possible future experiences. We're even thinking about the sense experiences we're having right now at times. So this is just our predicament. And ultimately, it's neither good nor bad, this predicament of being a central being. It's just it's the realm we exist in. It's our, where we find ourselves. And uh, the Buddha says that if we're going to be in this sense realm, then we should notice, we should learn about the three things. We should learn about the very real gratification that arises in moments as a sensual being. We should learn about the very real danger, right? And we've been looking at that the last three weeks or so. And so the short, you know, word we use, the short understanding, the simple understanding is the danger of sensuality is the strong tendency to take sense experience personally, to have preferences, to act out our preferences, to get attached. And then, so that makes it easy on an intellectual level to understand the escape. The escape is the release of that attachment, the renunciation of all of that conditioning in our mind, in our heart, to be attached. Just like in our set, even on the level of feeling, feeling the sensations in the body, you know, all of those little movements in our body, in our mind and body to deal with the pain that we felt in the knee or the ache in the back or the restlessness or whatever those little impulses were like for you, right? So we get attached to seeking, finding some kind of satisfaction in our body feeling comfortable. And so we're always looking there. I mean, that's a real common place to look, to feel good. Like, what can I do? How can I adjust my body? I mean, you maybe have seen this, but we can just do this with our imagination. If somebody has been videotaping us all day long, and just, um, and then at the you know, Monday night class, they would show the video high speed and we would just notice all the little movements, you know, all the little scratches, all the little adjustments, the stretching out the legs, the bringing the legs in, the sipping water, the... And when we, uh, if we were to look at each of those moments, if we could kind of 
look at what the mind, how the mind was perceiving, what the mind was thinking, what was moving in the mind between before each of those movements, we'd see it was either a seeking of a pleasant sense experience or the seeking to get rid of an unpleasant sense experience. So this is our world, you know, that we inhabit. And then the interesting thing is like what well, what how do we even hold or how do we even intuit this escape? Something other than being in the world chasing carrots, you know, the dangling carrots, the next interesting experience that's going to make our life seem, or at least the moment seem relatively important or meaningful or significant because when I go home, I get to have whatever Halloween candy's left. Or when I go home, I get to check the news and see is there any new developments in the political scene or you know whatever to get to go to bed. Get to have a healthy meal instead of Snicker bars or something like that. And we all, you know, it would be interesting to hear, we all have our particular war stories about our own relationship with sense experience. And generally it's this pendulum swing from times when we give in and we just let ourselves have what we seek or want to the degree it's available. And then times when we're sort of that scolding parent. No, you can't. That's not good for you. Stop it. You know, no candy, no TV, no this, no that. You don't want to become addicted. You don't want to become like those other people. You don't want to become fat. You don't want to become, you know, and then fill in the blank. And that's, that is the danger of sensuality, right, is that somehow we justify, we inhabit that space, just a matter of where you are in that pendulum swing, you know, thinking that indulging in sensuality's happiness, thinking that somehow getting in control of this central beast by denying him what he wants is the way. But that's also just a reaction to sensuality And so, of course, the Buddha was very clear about the escape. Not even with a shower of gold coins would we find satisfaction in sensual craving. Knowing that sensual cravings are suffering, they bring little delight. The wise person does not rejoice even in divine pleasures. One who delights in the ending of craving is a disciple of the fully awakened ones one who delights in the ending of craving, right? So that's the short answer for the escape, the ending of craving, the cessation of craving. Nibbana, nirvana, awakening, liberation, that's how it's technically defined as the cessation of craving. So even intellectually, that's just such an interesting thing. Like what does that feel like? What does that look like? And I mentioned before, you know, sometimes in our quieter sits, we get a little bit of the flavor, sometimes even a very strong flavor of what the cessation of craving is like. Because 
just quite naturally when the mind really settles into, let's say, a deep state of samadhi, of concentration, there's a, there's a lot of joy of seclusion. The mind is secluded from the dangling carrots. Right? It's secluded from being tormented by knee pain because the mind is, the attention isn't paying attention to that grosser level of sensation. The knee may be hurting, actually, but the mind just isn't attending, like when it's in a concentrated state. So it's feeling a lot of inner happiness, a lot of inner bliss, that is the expression of not being tormented by the, the carrots, the exciting sense possibilities. It's retreated from that, it's secluded. And so because there's a lot of inner happiness, inner bliss, then the mind, the mind's relationship to the sensual world shifts temporarily. It feels like I have everything I want. I don't need to go home and go to bed. I don't need to go home and have the Halloween candy. I don't need to fix this problem in my life. So just even with a good set, this isn't the uprooting of craving, but it's a temporary extinction, uh, extinguishing of craving that we call, that's what we mean by jhana or uh, the mind absorbing into a deeper, quieter state of meditation. That's, it's defined by the, the deeper, the deepest state, the, what's called the fourth jhana, is defined by the cessation of craving. It temporarily, desire temporarily goes away from the mind. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but I've, I mentioned it a lot in the past Buddhist studies classes, but there's a particularly interesting time when the Buddha was a young boy. And did I mention about the rose apple tree last week? I don't think so. So anyway, this is something he reported later when he was a teacher. And he said, yeah, there was this time when I was a little boy and I was just sitting under this beautiful rose apple tree, maybe in bloom, and it was like a festival day. And the Buddha's mind just settled into one of these states of absorption, one of these really quiet states where there's a lot of inner happiness precisely because the little boy wasn't seeking happiness, wasn't seeking delights, wasn't seeking to make anything different than it was, right? So his mind just settled into a really peaceful state. And this, he remembered this actually when he was before his deep insight, and it really helped him to correct his practice. But the point I want to make tonight is just to, this really, these experiences we've had, even if it's not the full, deepest state of absorption, like that wasn't, that time as a little kid, that was just the first jhana, like the, the initial state. Even there's still some thoughts at that state of meditation. So it's not like a really, 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 really quiet state. But it's a state where the mind is secluded from the grosser cognitive activity of thinking about what I want, thinking about what I, I don't want. If the thinking is doing anything, it's doing like, this is a really nice state. You know, having this, the thought, this is a really peaceful state. 
there's a lot of happiness here. This is really nice. Maybe I can trust this. Right? So thoughts that keep pointing the mind back toward how nice the state of mind is. Those are the kind of thoughts you have in this state of concentration. So that's the state the Buddha was in. And, uh, but it teaches those, those relatively quiet states we have, it teaches us something, right? Because when we're feeling that basic contentedness and peace and ease that isn't about our circumstances in our life being different, we're still the same age, we still have the same relationship problems or other limitations or the same bank account. We live in the same messy world where there's real injustice, where people mistreat each other, where there are children who don't have enough food to eat, and you know, countless animals living really horrific lives before they're slaughtered for our food. I mean, there's just so many, but there's a way where the heart can be at ease. Now this, with the place I'm talking about, happens because we've secluded ourselves from the messiness of the world. But the experience of non, uh, of the, the experience of craving ceasing is real. But it's just the cause for that cessation of craving, attachment, is because the mind secluded itself. I mean, in a very mundane way, we get this when we stop looking at the news for a few days. You know, we go on a, a retreat, and we leave behind our cell phones and our computers, and we don't talk, and we just, even that grosser level of seclusion has an effect on the mind. The kind of contentment that arises, you can take a walk in the woods and feel ecstatic. You can look at the ripples of the lake or hear the wind blowing through the trees and feel really free and alive. So this is some of that seclusion I'm talking about. And it's important to understand that that freedom is real. Like the, the, how the mind is experience, experiencing the great reduction of craving, the great reduction of attachment is real. And then the question is, how can that non-craving, non-attachment arise when the mind isn't secluded from the messiness, isn't secluded from the shiny objects that we like, you know, the things that get dangled in front of us that we want, that we're conditioned to like? I meant to send, but I, I, it's still in a draft form, an email to the Buddhist Studies group with an article by Andrew Sullivan. Some of you might know him. He was one of the first big-time bloggers. He had, his blog was called The Dish, and he's an author and uh, sort of a political comment, com, uh, commentator. Um, but he did a retreat at IMS, this, I think this last year, and he's written an article about being addicted to the Internet, basically, and how he's kind of addressed that addiction. And I don't know, people, I mean, I know his, he had the number one blog for a number of years. And it was a good blog. I used to read it from time to time. And, uh, and then he gave it up, right, kind of at its peak. Just, that's enough. 
because he, he just, as you might imagine, if you know these blogs, in order to keep up the clientele, you got to keep putting new interesting things out all the time. And he even had, a, toward the latter years, you know, had a big staff to help him, but it's sort of a, a never-ending thing. So he just gave it up. And uh, anyway, he wrote this article. I'll send it out to everybody. It was in the New York Magazine um, a month or two ago. But just talking about, you know, in terms of things dangling in front of us, how often we want our fix, something to put in our mouth, whatever it is, cough drop, tea, something warm, something sweet, something salty, something we want to put in the mind, something provocative, something soothing, something light and funny. I need some comedy. I need a cat video. I, you know, I need something provocative to sort of meet my need for self-righteousness now. And it's like we're constantly feeding on sensuality, thinking we need something. I need a little affection for my spouse. I need a little combativeness with my spouse. I need this. I need that. This great diversity. We're addicted to the diversity of you know, this array of sensuality. And, uh, and this sort of uh, endless engagement, you know, we, um, the intensity that comes with it, the agitation that comes with it, even though it's stressful, on the surface, it feels like we're alive. So this reality of non-craving, the reality of non-grasping, the releasing of attachment, we get, it's really useful to, to get a taste of it in concentration practice because the idea of it doesn't, it isn't appealing. But the experience of it is very appealing to the mind. And so if you, like the normal route the Buddha taught is like, notice what it feels like when craving ceases in concentration and then develop wisdom so that that experience of non-craving can be sustained even as you engage your life in the messy world and show off and do what needs to be done to make the world a better place. But all the while sustaining the non-attachment, the non-craving. Right? Because when I talk about it now, or when you talk to yourself about it or read about it, it's like, it just feels like a desert, doesn't it? So I'm going to go home, and you know, because we always are quite well. I know it's okay to eat what's in the refrigerator. I know it's okay to look at the internet, but I can't be attached. So it's like, well, what's the point of eating the Halloween candy if I'm not going to like it, if I'm not allowed to like it, or to, you know, read the news if I'm not allowed to be self-righteously indignant, you know, or to have affection without somehow owning it in some way. She loves me. He loves me. So it seems like, well, what is the purpose? What is the point of sensuality, of sense existence, if we don't own the experiences we're having, if, we don't, if, they're not, if they don't belong to us, if they're not personally meaningful? So... You see, from that intellectual point of view, it's sort of like, 
because it doesn't make sense from the point of view of the story. Non-attachment, non-craving will never make sense from the point of self, from the self-frame. It won't make sense. Because the whole point of self, self, you know, normally we think that because of self there's craving. But there's an interesting twist that I've read recently and it just really, I think, helps understand the Buddhist teachings. It's the, really the other way around. Because of the habit of craving, the sense of self gets constructed. Right? So craving just is the habit the mind falls into. You know, you could just, it makes actually intellectual sense from the frame of survival, you know, just the, this biological mechanism wanting to replicate, wanting to survive. Craving is, a, craving is a useful psychological mechanism to support the survival of the beast. And then once language arises, the sense of self, this idea, this construction of a me, really helps keep the craving going, right? that really works well with the mechanism of craving which supports the survival. So this is, uh, to undo this, we need to understand, you know, we, we have to see it. And the more we are willing to notice the uh, experience of seclusion, the mind secluded from sense desire, from attachment to sense desire. And like uh, a new kind of food, you cultivate a taste for it. Oh, yeah, the, you know, I was a little suspicious at first. You know how it is when you eat something that has flavor or texture you're not used to eating? When sometimes brings home uh, frozen mochi balls from United Noodle, an Asian grocery store nearby. And, uh, you know, it's sort of a different texture. I don't know if any of you have had that. It's they're sort of big and... Japan, I guess. Um, it's just like, must be like uh, rice starch or something like that. Hmm? Is it bean paste? Mochi balls? I thought that was rice. Anyway, they might, some, some have bean inside of them. Yeah, yeah, but the, the mochi itself is rice, yeah. And, uh, but they, they make them sweet, and sometimes they put azuki beans, azuki beans in, in the middle of them, but sweetened azuki beans. But anyway, it's a different texture, different flavors, and you know, we're really suspicious of it. But, and it's a little bit like this with non-craving, too. You know, especially more, not from the seclusion, but more like being right in the middle. It's, it's cultivating a taste for peace for release, for the emptiness of agitation, for the letting go of agitation, for the non-disturbance of the mind. And for a mind that has been for almost ever addicted to intensity, you see it's a new taste. It takes a while to cultivate it. In the beginning, you know, the way we start is we don't like give ourselves a new taste. We say, okay, so you're addicted to intensity. Take a closer look. That's looking at the drawbacks, right? Be honest about what you're getting from the intensity. That's the 
looking at the gratification. Now let's really study the drawbacks of intensity, like it hurts. Being attached is tight. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. We can keep seeing that. And then, and then that combined with some experience where the mind is relatively secluded, whether you just have a quiet day where you're not hanging out with folks, not talking too much, not watching TV, checking your email, and you just, like, just in that most basic way, appreciating the simplicity of the secluded mind, and kind of really looking at, oh, that, yeah, this is okay. So then, so then, and you're making the connection that the reason this feels good is precisely because my mind's not being pushed around by things that are intense. Intense only makes sense from a personal point of view, right? There's no intensity. It's like you could have a wicked storm blowing through Minneapolis, but if there's nobody taking the storm personally, what's the, is it a wicked storm? No, it's only a wicked storm to somebody who's used to sort of ordinary weather. So when it's one of those, you know, three big storms that really blow through each year, then it's sort of intense. But it's only intense for a person. Forget, oh, it was that Saturday retreat. I read this great poem that I heard Joseph Goldstein read a number of years ago by the Nobel laureate uh, poet from Poland, and I'm not even going to try to say her, his or her name. I don't even remember if it's a woman or a man. But it's uh, something grain of sand. I forget the title, but it has grain of sand in the title of the poem. And, it, and the poet is just pointing out how, you know, all of the world it, that we know is really from the personal frame. And that especially this point of things being personally meaningful, personally intense, significant. It's all from a particular frame. So when we're playing, experiencing the reality of non-attachment, non-grasping, right, we're purposefully abandoning that frame. Sometimes we can, we'll call this just bare attention. So the wicked storm, not from a personal frame, you know, you can see, you can just imagine some big clouds, great clouds blowing in and the winds picking up and you start to hear the thunder. And then you could just use your practice. It's just light. It's just sound being known, sights being seen, sensations being felt. You're keeping it at its elemental level, not like a big storm is coming my way. I wonder if something will happen to my house. You know, all these sort of things that make, that sort of feed the intensity. And are we sort of feeding that kind of way of being with the storm, or are we feeding another way of being with the storm? It's just what it is. And even if the mind starts to indulge and react and whip up a story, personal story about it, even that in a moment can be seen, even that story, that cognitive activity can be seen as just something being known too. But we're only going to do this when we have uh, some faith or confidence, either from our direct experience or 
indirectly because the teacher is telling us, the Buddha is telling us, that there's something called freedom, there's liberation, there's safety in this way of being. It's interesting, I was just looking at Raha and knowing that she has several children. And, uh, you know, to, especially because they're older now, the youngest is like 12 or 13, right? And uh, j- just to sort of practice how to really show up and listen to their dramas as teens and young adults and to really care and to be responsive, but to somehow not be touched, like, I care, I'm your mom, I'm going to do what I can do, and your life is your life. You know that feeling? Especially with the older daughter, you know, to just, um, and we can feel that way about anything, not just our kids, but our partners. I really work over many years now with my partner, with Wynne, who's here tonight, and uh I'm assuming she does the same, of like not being afraid of her suffering. Not sort of like really feeling what I feel, being touched by what I see in terms of her joy and sorrows, but not uh, having, not like feeding on it, not being pushed around by it. I find it some of the most challenging work, to be in an intimate relationship and to really, because you know, over now many decades of being together, you know, I'm just sort of psychically attuned. So when there's up and when there's down, I really feel it, I sense it. And just allowing that to be. And so this is, this is the reality of non-grasping. This is the escape from sensuality, is how to be in the middle without being pushed around. This is the Asutta, the Upadana Sutta, which is the discourse uh, from the Buddha on clinging. Remind me if I've read this before in the course. I don't think I have, but I might have. Dwelling at Sabati, which is one of the main towns at the time of the Buddha, there the Blessed One said to the practitioners, the nuns, the monks, the lay people, and one who keeps focusing on the allure of clingable phenomenon, craving develops, right? And one who keeps focusing on the allure, on the intensity, on the excitement, both of what's dangerous or unpleasant and what's exciting and possibly possibly pleasant, craving develops, right? So craving develops according to what we pay attention to. And what are we paying attention to? We're objects of the mind and body. So the five physical senses, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and touches, and objects of the mind, thoughts, or mental images. From craving as a requisite, This is an interesting, listen to this. From craving as a requisite condition comes clinging sustenance, right? Because there's craving, the mind finds something to crave. This is a very provocative thing. I mean, not to get too metaphysical, but 
you know, in, in a lot of the places where the Buddha's teaching, he, he, it's really the, an opposite frame from a materialistic view. You know, because there's the world, we crave it. Here, it's because there's craving, a world arises. Things to cling to arise because there's craving. And in dependent origination, you know, the Buddha's description, he says there's ignorance. From ignorance, there's karmic formations. There are impulses in, in a mind, right? There's latent tendencies. Because of ignorance, there are latent tendencies. The mind's not at ease. The mind's not at peace. And because of these karmic formations, consciousness arises. And because of consciousness, uh, body and mind come to be. And sensitivity, and because of sensitivity, contact. Because of contact, feeling. That's the intensity. Things feel intensely pleasant, intensely unpleasant. And everything else we just ignore because we're intensity junkies. So, But the interesting point here is that the world is born out of this ignorance, and the ignorance is this unsettledness of the mind, the latent tendencies that are alive in the mind. And the whole world gets born out of that. So that's a different frame than our normal materialistic frame that, you know, which is, of course, a complete mystery because, like, they don't talk about, well, how did the world come to be? But anyway, the world is here, the earth is here, and then you've got this sort of stew of the water and the ammonia and whatever else was there in the primal sea, and all of a sudden there are these little elemental things that start to circulate around each other and then there are molecules and then there are little simple beings and then more complex beings and eventually you get a human being with a mind. Right? That's the materialistic view. And because the mind is so complicated, we start to crave things. Isn't that kind of like what scientists from a materialistic frame would say? But from a Buddhist frame, it, start, it really starts with the mind. Right? It's the mind that's central here. And when the mind, for whatever reason, and the Buddha doesn't talk about beginnings, he says it's incalculable. If you think about it, you go crazy. But for a long, long time, the mind has been unsettled. There have been karmic formations, unfinished business. And that is what leads to the f- something to cling, something to grasp, something to want, something to not want, and on and on. So let me just finish this. From craving as a requisite, condition comes clinging, sustenance for clinging. From clinging sustenance, because the word upadana, clinging, it really is both the activity of clinging and the thing that's clung to. So, well, I'll get to this in a minute. From clinging sustenance as a requisite condition becomes comes becoming, right? So when there's this clinging sustenance, then there's somebody who wants to become, like the person who gets what they want, gets rid of what they want to get rid of. From becoming as a requisite condition comes birth. From birth as a requisite condition, then aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, despair come into play. Such is the origin of this entire mass of suffering and stress. And then he gives a simile, which makes it simple, I, I think. <laughs> Just as a great mass of fire 
10, 20, 30, 40 cartloads of timber were burning. And into it, a person would from time to time throw dry grass, cow dung, dry timber, so that that great mass of fire, thus nourished, thus sustained, would burn for a very long, long time. In the same way, one who keeps focusing on the allure, craving develops. From craving comes clinging. From clinging, becoming. From becoming, birth, and the whole mass of suffering. Now, in one who keeps focusing on the drawbacks of clingable phenomenon, right? it's as if somebody, there's a raging fire, but the person doesn't throw (coughs) fuel into the fire. Well, that fire is going to go out. So, if we want to realize the reality of non-clinging, non-grasping, the freedom from craving, Nibbana, if we have some intuition that the Buddha and all the Buddhist, you know, all the people following these teachings, people who have practiced being awake, studying, you know, the reality of gratification, the reality of danger, the reality of escape, realizing, understanding all of that, if we want to follow in those footsteps, then we get interested in how, how to not feed the fires. So how to go home and see the refrigerator and maybe even eat some food, but not feeding the fires. You know, there's an interesting chant that the nuns and monks do when they're, uh, I don't think I brought it, um, when they're, they've received their food being offered by the lay people every day, right? Because they they're not allowed to store food overnight, so they have to go collect food freely offered by the lay folks every day. And then at the end, they do this chant, and they're basically saying, this is a very rough paraphrase, but you know, I received this food not to make my body beautiful, not to entertain my mind with the delicious tastes, but just to sustain this body to sustain the health of this body, to keep the mind in balance so I can do this practice, this practice of realizing non-clinging, realizing non-attachment. So he says at the end of the sutta, just as if a great mass of fire were burning, into which a person simply would not Time again, time and again, throw dried grass, dried cow dung, dried timber, so that that great mass of fire, its original sustenance being consumed, and no other being offered with without nutriment, go out. In the same way, in one who keeps focusing on the drawbacks, craving ceases. From the cessation of craving comes the cessation of clinging, grasping. From the cessation of clinging, grasping comes the cessation of becoming. From that comes the end of all this great mass of suffering. So there's a a particular formula um, that's related to this seeing the allure, seeing the gratification, seeing the drawbacks of sensuality and the escape. You know, a lot of the teachings that the Buddha are covering, really, they're all covering the same territory. And they're sort of like different maps, overlapping maps of the same territory that basically illuminate how suffering arises 
and how suffering ceases. But, you know, because the Buddha taught for 45 years and he had a lot of different people, the particular articulation, the particular map is distinct for the particular time and place or the person that was there. So another common map the Buddha would use is, you know, we pay attention to things as they are and we notice the... um, you know, the underlying reality that it's changing, that it's unsatisfactory because it's changing. Whatever we're watching, whatever we're observing, whatever we're aware of, we see its changing nature. We see that that is unsatisfactory for the ego that wants ground. I want something I can have, grasp. Right? Aren't we, like when we work on our house, we're mostly under the illusion, then it will be nice. Then it will be done. As if it's like a final point. You know, or we're looking to have a relationship, and then I'll be in a relationship as if it's a static, final, okay, I have a partner, check. You know, I've got a job, check. I've got, as if we're getting to a place where it's done. I have it. I'm, I'm in that safe place. So the Buddha says basically you do that and when you start seeing the underlying nature, very naturally the mind withdraws because what had had been taking to be a refuge, engagement with sensuality, it now sees is not going to save me. So the mind withdraws, and that's called seclusion. And it's even true for us. I mean, this is already happening for us. Like when you get online and and register for a residential retreat or sign up for a day-long retreat or decide to sit for an hour in the morning, it's like not maybe every time, but a lot of the time it's like somewhere in your heart you're feeling like, I really need to withdraw from this world for a while. Isn't that how you feel sometimes when you decide to sit? It's like, I just need to put down the whole thing. I need to sit down and not move and bring my attention to my body and stop thinking about this and worrying about that and planning this, right? And where does that desire, that wholesome desire to practice, to go on a retreat, where does that come from? It comes from you seeing something about the underlying nature of your life. Like, I need a break from trying to find satisfaction in what is not providing satisfaction. Remember the simile I read a couple weeks ago about the dog chewing on the bones that doesn't have any bones that don't have any meat left on them and how unsatisfying that is for the dog, right? So after we've done that enough, we want to withdraw. So there's seclusion. And then because of the seclusion whether it's just a sit or even in your daily life, like you're just less attached, less believing the next experience is going to deliver the satisfaction you've always wanted. So you're secluded, you're less attached. Then the next thing in this formula, this model or a map the Buddha uses is dispassion. So first is just paying attention and seeing the underlying nature. Things are changing fundamentally unsatisfying and not 
not personal, right? Things are coming and going, but it's not really personal. And then that naturally causes the mind to withdraw, to seclude. And then the seclusion leads to a very natural dispassion, which is you realize, the mind realizes, actually it's safe to withdraw. Like, it's actually kind of nice. So this is the beginning of dispassion, like, oh, it's not so bad. Not checking the news. You know, you go home, oh yeah, I could have that to eat, I could have that. And then you're sitting and you're, you know, you're kind of just hanging out, the cat's on the lap, and you realize, I don't need to eat. I mean, I could eat, it still would be pleasant, but I'm, I don't need that. I have dispassion about that sense experience. I, there's some understanding in the mind that it's only going to last a while and then my stomach's going to be full and that will be unpleasant. So I think I'll just skip it. I could go online and look for some entertainment, but that's kind of a pain in the butt. So I think I'll skip it. I could do this, but mm, I'm okay. Right? So that's this dispassion is sort of the growing sense that the happiness of the mind not being dependent on getting, having different sense experience is starting to be seen as a higher happiness than the happiness of having those sense. It's not that this eating the food in the fridge, having the entertainment that's available, it's not like that experience that, that you understand it differently. It's just that you're realizing how nice it is to not need to have it, right? So this is the beginning. Dispassion is the beginning of understanding the happiness of non-attachment or the happiness of non-dependence, not needing the moment to be other than it is. We actually start to taste that joy of renunciation, which I'll talk more about next week. <clears throat> and then uh, the more that dispassion arises in the mind, then that sets up the third, The deep, you know, it's just a a deepening of the same insight, which in Buddhism is normally called cessation. And it's really the integration and generalization of this dispassion, right? Because as I'm seeing that, you know, I'm okay not getting the food in the fridge. I'm okay not going out over there and getting my computer and seeing what's entertaining. I'm, o- I'm okay not calling or checking my text messages. I'm okay just letting things be. And then the mind begins to understand the happiness that it's experiencing, the happiness of non-dependence, the happiness of the mind not needing things. Right? It begins to understand that, and it begins to generalize and integrate that understanding so that the mind realizes like a different frame altogether. So normally the mind's frame is always related to sense experience. So now it's waking up to uh, the mind independent of sense experience. So that's like a different reality. Like sometimes in Buddhism, teachers call that a different reality, nibbana or cessation as as awakening to a different reality because the only reality we know is when our mind is oriented around sense experience. And now the mind, because of the interest in the, interest in the experience of dispassion, 
and the integration of that experience of dispassion and the generalization, like really getting what this experience of dispassion is pointing to, it can have a glimpse of the mind independent of sense experience. And that's like a defi- one definition of freedom of Nibbana is realizing the mind that's independent of conditioned experience. But that mind isn't somewhere else. Right? That mind's right here in the middle of sense experience. But it's like uh, Ajahn Chah sometimes uses the simile of oil and water. It's like you put them in the same jar, you know, like when you're making salad dressing, and you put your olive oil in, and then you put the water-based stuff like vinegar in, and who knows what else you put in, but milk or whatever you're going to have in your salad dressing, and they separate out. There's sort of two things. And it's like that's what happens is the mind realizes, the mind is realized as being independent of conditioned experience. Thoughts, sensations, sights, sounds, everything that comes and goes. Now, we, we intuit this whenever we're moving along. So we study the world. We notice it's changing. We notice how unsatisfying that is, how impersonal it is. Naturally, the mind secludes, withdraws. It's less dependent. We begin to feel the reality of dispassion as something pleasant. Oh, yeah. This isn't dangerous. We cultivate that taste for equanimity, for non-attachment, for dispassion, right? And the more we trust it, then that's that integration. It sort of sets up a deeper insight into cessation. Where in a moment, the mind is in no, in no way orienting around sense experience. But it's right in the middle of sense experience, but it, it isn't... Um, framing itself. It's not framing experience in terms of sense experience. Sense experience is just nature. And nature is just nature. Don't worry. It's like the the frame. This frame is just for you to kind of play with in your practice, right? Because now you've got some words. So you can like, when you feel that, that sort of like letting everything be, oh, this, this must be what the Buddha means by seclusion. And when you notice that it's pleasant in a funny way, oh, this is that dispassion. It's like, it's not like, oh, I mean, it's not a resignation. It's like dispassion is, uh, you know, passion means suffering. I don't know if you know that in, I don't know if it's Greek or Latin, but the root of passion is the passion of Christ. Some of you remember from your Christian theology, right? It's the suffering of Christ. So dispassion is the letting go of that suffering the addiction to intensity, right? And then it's just a matter of like learning to trust that because it's a natural movement. It isn't something a self has to do. It's like we're just setting it in motion by paying attention to things as they are and in particular to the drawbacks. But that just comes from, you'll notice that just from studying, being open, being interested in, the conditioned experience. So there's a little bit of time, a little less than 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from a few of you, your own beginning. And next week we'll have our small groups and we'll talk about 
uh, you'll share, hopefully, your own experience of escape from attachment and what that looks like for you. But any questions about what I've said tonight or comments from your own practice you'd like to share? Anything come to mind? Hopefully it wasn't too confusing. Well, I guess I I should begin with that. um, The reason I'm asking this question is because I'm clinging to enjoying sensuality. Um, So, but I, I remember when we were talking about in the beginning, there were two weeks when we were allowed to like really pay attention to the enjoyment of it and really enjoy it. And then, and even on the Labor Day retreat, it was like, you know, you don't have to be afraid of beauty and love and those and enjoy that. And then tonight, you said, um, it was actually in reference to the, I, you know, going home and eating the Halloween candy, but I'm not supposed to like it. So I'm confused there. I mean, are we not supposed to enjoy sensual experience uh, in order to find freedom? Or <laughs> is there a way to enjoy it and not become, not to, uh, attached to it or something? No. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, it, it all depends what we mean by enjoy of course. But the fact is we will enjoy, we do enjoy things. And so at this point when we're enjoying things, the only thing that's important is to get curious about that experience of enjoying it. Like, and to really tease out what of that enjoyment that's happening right now is, uh, comes with attachment. And you'll know it comes with attachment when there's a squeeze, attention, suffering, right? So remember, we, we don't have to give up something we really benefit from. We're moving from happiness that's not really happiness at all to happiness that is really happiness. And, the, and so it doesn't really work to sort of um, tell yourself you can't have what you want. What actually works is when you give yourself what you're going to give yourself anyway, the Halloween candy when you go home, right? and you're going to have it if there's any left, then the, the important thing is not to stop yourself from eating the Halloween candy, but if you're going to eat it, to really notice what that experience is. And, and not just when you're eating it, to notice what is the wanting the Halloween candy before you actually get home. What's the anticipation? Because on the surface... The anticipation feels like really juicy, exciting. But is it? You know, we don't want to just assume that the surface of the experience is the whole thing. What else is there in the experience of anticipation? What else is there in the experience of gratification? You know, so to really be intimate with gratification, but also notice the inevitable disappointment when it's all gone or it's not pleasant anymore eating it, you know. So then what's that like? And then what, it's, what is it like the next moment and the next moment? So that it's just a natural, like the Buddha says in one of his discourses, um, you know, a wise person would happily give up a grosser happiness, a happiness with limitations, if there were a happiness that's more refined, more resonant, and doesn't come and go. The happiness of letting go 
doesn't come and go. The happiness of non-attachment doesn't come and go. What experience, what condition, what circumstance could arise for us in which our heart, our mind wouldn't be able to relate with non-attachment? See, non-attachment isn't dependent on conditions. So if it's in fact a really beautiful kind of happiness, a really resonant happiness, the kind of happiness the heart actually wants, actually desires, and that happiness can exist no matter the conditions or circumstance, we would choose it. So this evolution, this practice movement from the happiness that arises with gratification of sense experience is naturally abandoned. This is a natural movement toward a more resonant, satisfying happiness. It's the happiness, but the thing is we just don't know it. So not even we don't know it because we haven't had it, we just haven't named it. We haven't kind of clearly understood this happiness of the mind, the heart, not dependent. It's the happiness of independence, the happiness of the mind not being pushed around, not being tormented by what comes and goes. But the thing is, we're so entranced, so excited by what comes and goes that we still think, but it's only because we haven't studied the drawback. Next week, I'll read the. I'll send you out the sutta with the article by Andrew Sullivan. I'll send the sutta about the Buddha explains why initially his heart did not leap up at the thought of renunciation. Right? These lay people come to the Buddha and says and say to him something like, "We're really happy pursuing sense experience. You know, our hearts definitely do not leap up at the idea of renunciation, and it confuses us because." There are these young women and men joining your monastic community, and their hearts seem to light up with renunciation, be happy about renunciation, and we don't get it. And the Buddha says, yeah, I didn't get it at first either. So I'll send that out. It's a really accessible sutta that you can read. And then also Andrew Sullivan talking about the joy of putting aside the internet. which is a real-life example. But we need to leave it here. Thanks, Maggie. And let's just take a few moments. Let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath or two together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.